It's time for another episode of Espresso Yourself with Chuck. And now, coming to the mic, your host, Mr. Chuck Knapp. Well, this is a first for Espresso Yourself with Chuck. This is the first time we've had a former NFL player on the show. Uh, but Gary Gilliam Jr. is more than a superior athlete. He's an entrepreneur. Uh, he's someone who has given back immensely and is giving back uh, to his community and has a great story to tell. So, Gary, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Well, let's just dive in. Tell us a little bit about your childhood, uh, maybe um, some of the obstacles during that period of life, and want to want to kind of go through the progression from when you were a youth to becoming one of like less than one percent of the high school athletes that become a Division One scholarship athlete, and then of course uh, the tremendous odds to make it to the NFL. But let's start with your youth. Tell us uh, where you grew up and kind of your story at that time. Yeah, so I was born in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and my mom was a single parent, if you will, and I have an older brother whose name is his Vic, his name is Victor, and um, when Vic was born, he had some complications uh, with his heart, so he had to have open heart surgery, and then due to some complications during that surgery, it led him to, to develop cerebral palsy. Uh, I say all that to say this, that mom taught me very early on to fight right? Because if anybody was ever picking on my brother or saying anything about someone less fortunate or in that manner, she's like, look, it's up to you, especially with how big and strong you are to protect those people. And that's because mom was the same way, right? Mom actually got kicked out of school indefinitely for fighting. And uh, it was because it wasn't just because she was going around picking fights with people, but she was a bullier of bullies, if you will. And at the time, unfortunately, sometimes that meant she was fighting teachers, right? And they were like, look, you're out of here. So they kicked her out of school. <clears throat> but with that said, right, mom got kicked out of school, but she she made sure my brother and I knew that academics were very important, right? At the time, no one in my family had actually ever even graduated from high school. My brother eventually went on to be the first one in my family, and then I went on to be the second one. But um, she taught us about protecting, providing, you know, the academics were much more important than, you know, athletics. And uh, but unfortunately, the the environment that we lived in in Harrisburg wasn't very conducive of us developing into these these whole men, if you will. And um, Harrisburg, low homeowner occupied rates, uh, food desert, the school districts ranking is is dang near last in the, in the state. You know, just not a, a great situation for a young kid or young or family to, to really develop. So mom did everything in her power to find new environments for us to be in. Uh, one of which was Hershey, Pennsylvania. Great. And so I know you had an opportunity uh, for a really good education, but that you didn't know that uh, that's what you signed up for when you uh, when you started. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of of um, that that opportunity with with uh, the the private school? Yeah, yeah. So. In Harrisburg, uh, the school district, again, not ranked the best in the state by any means. And um, I was a young kid who loved school. Honestly, I love to learn, very curious. And I would get A's, right? I would do my work, get A's, and then get bored and start talking and doing whatever I wanted in class. And teachers are like, look, 
this kid is is really talented, but we got to figure out a way to keep him occupied, mom. So we want to skip him up two grades. We think that that'd be best for him. And mom was like, ah, I don't know if that's what's best for my kid, right? Maybe he's he's academically there, but like socially, that might not be the best thing for him, you know? So again, mom went to look for different environments, one of which and the best of which was in Hershey, Pennsylvania. So mom and I, we, we get in the car one day and we, we take a trip to Hershey, which is only about 15, 20 minutes away from Harrisburg. And, you know, I'd been there before, but we didn't go to Hershey Park or like any of that stuff. Chocolate World, like we went to this big white dome called Founders Hall, which to me looked like R2-D2. <laughs> but uh, so we go in and it's like marble, a bunch of like beautiful chandeliers around. There's like a bunch of like flags and like gold trim. Like it's just like, wait, like where are we at right now? So again, unbeknownst to me though, eight years old. Just following mom, like, all right, cool. What are we up? Maybe a little day trip. We took day trips often. So we go to Founders Hall. We pick up a few things. And then we head to, no lie, a mansion. Um, and there's, like, playgrounds there. And there's a bunch of kids running around having a good time. And I'm like, oh, well, like, what is this place, you know? So mom's like, hey, Junior, go play up on the swings. I got to go in here, grab some things. And then we'll head home. I'm like, all right, cool. So I'm playing. Mom goes in. A few minutes, she comes out. I go to get in the car and she's like, no, keep on, you know, playing. I got to go back to Founders Hall, grab a couple more things. I'll be right back to get you and we'll head home. But you can keep on playing. I'll be back. I was like, all right, cool. You know, so I'm playing on the swings in the jungle gym, having a good time. Right. Mom left and, you know, starts getting darker and darker and darker and darker. And my mom didn't come back. Like this random guy had come out of the house and he's like, hey, Gary, it's time for you to come in and shower and get ready for bed. And I'm looking at this dude like stranger danger. You're talking about showers, talking about beds. Like, I don't know who you are. Like, so I hopped off the swing and started chucking to where mom said she was going to be at. And he's chasing after me like, no, 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 Gary. This is your home. You know, you, we're your family now. Your mom signed you over to us. Eight years old. Mom never explained anything to me, right? So I'm like, whoa, you know, <laughs> what is going on? So as you can imagine, feelings of abandonment, you know, confusion. Did I do something wrong? Did I do something right? Do I get to see my mom again? Like, who's going to protect my brother, my family? Like, long, you know, well, long story short, I did get to see my mom. I was able to see her during holidays and on the weekends, kind of like being in college in a way. But um, this was uh, where we were was a completely cost-free residential boarding school that was originally founded way back in 1909 for little white orphan boys by uh, Milton Hershey, right? Hershey's chocolate and his wife, Catherine Hershey, who they actually couldn't have children, uh, but still wanted to contribute to the next generation in a very meaningful way. So they founded this school and they, and they committed their family's wealth and their corporation's wealth to this school. And it was for little white orphan boys originally. And the school evolved and admitted black boys and continued to evolve and, and, and admit black boys and brown boys and girls and anybody who's really having an issue, right? So to this day, it's not just for orphans, but families below the poverty line, you know, single parent homes, foster kids, of course, orphans, right? Kids coming from some pretty tough situations. That's who qualified to go to the school. So I, I qualified. And then in order to get accepted, you have to pass this like IQ test. Because it's a pretty tough school academically, too. And uh, unbeknownst to me, I was accepted. <laughs> but uh, I'm at the school, confused, not really knowing what's going on, uh, crying myself to sleep literally every night. My, my first two years being at that school, 
you know, just trying to figure out why, you know, what, what's going on. And, and I eventually started to figure it out. Like, oh man, all these kids around here, are just like me, you know, we've all been through some things, our family situations are what they are, but like, here we are. Right. And, but I, I still didn't like crying and being homesick. So I figured, all right, maybe I, if I get involved in a bunch of stuff, you know, maybe that'd keep me from being homesick. So that's what led me to get involved in a bunch of sports, right? Football, basketball, baseball, ice hockey, track, swimming and diving. I did ballet, jazz and tap dance while I was at the school, learned how to play the piano and the guitar. I was in choir and band, you know, and I was doing all those things to, to distract myself. Right. But the school actually did it strategically. And they called it uh, the, this whole child approach, you know, beyond being a cost-free residential school that takes care of medical and dental and all that. They also provide all the wraparound services, education, opportunities and experiences for you to identify the intersection of your hobbies, your interests and your talents. And then they teach you how to monetize those things. Right. So we call them our career technical explorations, kind of like trades. So when we got to high school, they actually had us pick one and then they would adjust your curriculum to aid in that trade. And there are things like carpentry, uh, architecture, uh, automotive, business, health occupations, agriculture, graphic design, culinary arts, like the nines. And you pick one or two. Um, and in order for you to get your your diploma, they, they want you to be nationally certified in that trade. Uh, so myself, I had done graphic design and video production. I really wanted to be a video game designer at the time. Um, so I got certified in Photoshop, Illustrator, InDesign, Final Cut Pro, Adobe Premiere, right? all those things, which to, to this day now as an entrepreneur has been a huge benefit when you talk about building websites or pitch decks or, you know, whatever else. But um, learn those skills in high school. And honestly, when I got to college, I didn't realize that I was as good as I was in it until I took a, in my, one of my degrees is in advertising. I took a couple classes and we had to put together campaigns and the whole class, I don't know, they must have used like paint from windows or something. I don't know what they use, but like, bam, I presented like something that like, wait, like, is this dude like already a, you know, a marketer? And my teacher came up to me. He was like, hey, uh, you you clearly don't need this class. <laughs> he was like, but if you could, would you mind, you know, still coming and maybe assisting me and teaching the, you know, the rest of the class, you know, your skills? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, he's like, you're getting an A, obviously. He's like, but I, I, I'd love for you to, to assist. I'm like, yeah, I got you, which is crazy, right? So so thing like that was graphic design. The kids that did like the trades at, at Milton Hershey School, uh, you know, they would actually build a home and, you know, their senior year, like work on a home together, like, which is crazy. But um, so again, you have to get nationally certified in your trade to get this diploma. But there was, there was four requirements, national certification and trade. You had to have above a C average. You had to have your driver's license and you had to pass a swimming test. <laughs> and once you did those four things, then you unlocked the continuing education scholarship, which meant that not only would, or excuse me, wherever, whatever university, trade school, you know, college you got accepted to, the school would pay for the, the entire thing except for $2,000, right? So like, whoa, like this is a, a, a phenomenal opportunity, you know, <laughs> where are the rest of these campuses at? Like, this is uh, great. You know, why, why are there more of these Milton Hershey school campuses? One. And then two, like, where are the other towns like Hershey? Like, this is like a little Pleasantville here. Milton Hershey realized it was about creating these ecosystems, not just providing jobs, right? He created a, a places to work, eat, live, learn, play Hershey park, Hershey theater, right? Like everything you could ever want is right there in that town. And what it has yielded is a, 
a school with the largest educational endowment in the world. Milton Hershey School has a, a larger endowment than Yale, than Harvard, Milton Hershey School, right? Based on, from this corporation, which is which is wild. So like, I had two questions, you know, while I was growing up, where are the rest of these campuses? And then two, again, where are the other towns like Hershey? Why aren't these other corporations investing intentionally into these ecosystems? You know, so that yeah. was my time Milton Hershey, a unique experience, uh, no doubt. I've got plenty of stories that I could share, but I ended up being at the school for 10 years. Uh, a lot of the people that I met there, teachers, house parents, uh, my family, right? My brothers and sisters, literally like a lot of them are actually founders of my company with me now. I talk to them all the time. Uh, Milton Hershey School sends tons of kids actually over to the bridge. We work together quite often, you know, so I'm uh, very grateful that I had an opportunity to be to be engaged in such a in a culture and experience like that. Great. And we want to talk about the bridge in a little bit. I, at what point uh, you mentioned crying yourself to sleep for about two years and, and getting involved. How soon after that first day, were you able to reconnect with your mom? And, and I mean, did they intentionally try to prevent communication for a while? Or I'm, I'm just curious. Yeah, honestly. Uh, I mean, I, I do know my time at the school, I'm almost certain my mom called me every day. You know, okay. it wasn't like some like long 10, 15, 30 minute hour conversation, but just say, hey, hey, baby, just want to check in, tell you I love you, you know, good night. You know what I'm saying? Like, and yeah. so she was consistent with that. So I don't know if the very first day okay. talked or like I, I, I just blacked out, honestly. I don't even know what, what that first week besides crying. Right, was, right. You know, well, that would be devastating. Um, <laughs> especially at eight years old. Uh, but at what point when you were at the school, uh, you said you started asking those two questions, but at what point did you realize, wow, this is an incredible opportunity for me? I would say fifth grade, okay, so I was about 10, 11 years old. And, and the reason it sticks is because mom had actually come to me and was asking if, if, if she could take me out of the school. Right. She's like, hey, look, we've saved up some money. We've got our, our home situation together. You don't really need to be here anymore. You know, do you want to come home? And I'm like, no, I don't. Actually, I, I know why I'm here. I can earn a scholarship. You're not going to pay for college. This is a great environment. You know, like it got to a point where I was like, look, mom, my education is, is way more important than your tears. You know, granted, we're going to still be crying, but like this is a, this is worth it. And that was fifth grade. So I realized it like within within two years, you know, got it figured it out yeah. and really locked in and immersed myself in what the school had to offer right not everybody that comes out of the school is is super successful or like at all because a lot of people don't immerse themselves in what the school have to offer right especially see I went when I was eight I wasn't too entrenched in my ideals or or whatever else right so I, I really grew up in the school but there are people who come you know later late middle school early high school a little tougher for them to kind of wrap their head around getting woken up at 545 in the morning, having to do chores, right. Or having to set bedtime and study hour a little bit different, you know, but all in all, you know, the school, not perfect, but I think it does a great job of laying the foundation for people to, you know, find their highest and best self. So you clearly, you could have earned, well, you had the scholarship that was there if you did those four things. Uh, but notwithstanding that you, probably uh, based on your academics, you, you, you would have gone to college and probably got scholarships, but you uh, got an athletic scholarship um, for football. So 
you mentioned doing a lot of different sports and activities, but at what point did you realize that football might be something you could do beyond your high school years? <sighs> I, I'll start off by saying this. I'm a nerd trapped in an athlete's body. Like, <laughs> the whole sport thing, like watching it, talking about it. Eh, I'll go do it because it's fun, right? And I like, you know, getting better at things. But uh, I say all that to say this, that it was, I, I want to say my sophomore year of high school, my high school football coach, Robert Geyer, came up to me. He goes, um, at the time, I'm a sophomore, so I was about six, four, six, five, about 210, 15 pounds or so. And um, coach comes up to me. He's like, uh, you know, you've been playing pretty well. He's like, you know, you've got a nice side. you got a good head on your shoulders. He's like, I think you might have an opportunity to play at the next level, right, in college. And, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, cool, like, thank you. You know, that, that's, that's pretty cool. And then he goes, so that was the sophomore year. Then we progress right junior year scholarships and stuff start offers start coming in things like that. And he's like, uh, comes up to me again. He goes, so you're getting a lot of offers in and, and you obviously, you know, have an opportunity now to play at the next level. He goes, what conference would you want to play in? And I was like, I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you know, like Big Ten, Big East, SEC, ACC. I was like, yeah, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> <laughs> so he was like, well, I'm going to give you some homework. You need to go study what teams are in what conferences and where they're at and maybe let me know which area, you know, you might want to be in. So anyway, I say that to say just like I was really unbeknownst to the whole process, you know, like wasn't like a super crazy sport college football fan growing up. And even to this day, you're going to get a better conversation out of me talking about National Geographic, space, like nutrition more than you will football. I can talk it, right? But it's just not something I'm super interested in or never really was. Just happened to be a big dude, athletic. You know, I like solving problems, which is what football is about. So, <laughs> but you also, so if I'm, if I'm, if I remember this right, you were a tight end at that point and you were, you were recruited as a tight end, but was it your senior year? So, I mean, Penn State, um, you know, a historic program, the Nittany Lions, that Big Ten. It, I mean, that's a that's a big time program. So you clearly had some some offers. Um, do you want to talk about like your did you narrow it down to a top three or five or did was it because they were yeah. in Pennsylvania? What? How did you determine you wanted to go there? Yeah, so I actually had. I had academic scholarships as well as athletic scholarships um, and I could in all sports that I played it in high school, football, basketball. I was actually getting recruited by the majors in baseball. Um, and then I stopped playing baseball my sophomore year in high school and switched to track and ended up qualifying for nationals and javelin. Right. So like, I, I really could have done a bunch of different things, but I personally had four requirements for the university that I wanted to go to. Um, one, actually, no, was it, was it four? No, just three. One, I wanted to be fairly close to home. Right. You know, I, my family still doesn't have the most money, so they can't be flying all the way to California or something to come see me play. Um, two, 
I do want a chance to make it to the NFL. You know, so like as much as I might want to go to a Princeton or a Yale that I got these scholarships from, um, they're not turning out NFL players. And then third and most importantly, though, I do need my degree to mean something. You know, so like I'm definitely not going to Ohio State, right? <laughs> so that's why I chose to go to Penn State and then to put the cherry on top. Uh, the coach at the time, Joe Paterno, had this thing called the Grand Experiment. Right. Which I mean, was far beyond an experiment. He'd been doing it for like 50 some years. But uh, it was not only would Penn State attract the top athletes in the nation and be a top 25 program every single year. But we'd also be academic All-Americans and graduate over 90 percent of our athletes. Right. Which is unheard of in a top division one football program. Unfortunately, you know, maybe Stanford, a couple programs like that. We're getting better. But Joe's been Joe was, was doing it for years. And uh, it just sounded a lot like what I had grown up in. You know, we had this thing called the whole man concept at, at Milton Hershey School. And it just sounded a lot like that. So the culture fit. It was close to home. They were churning out NFL players. Actually, Penn State, I believe, maybe up until recently, had the most NFL players come out of its university. Wow. And then Pennsylvania itself actually has the most NFL Hall of Famers born in Pennsylvania. So we talk about football. Yeah, we talk about football in Pennsylvania. But uh, yeah, so I, I stayed, stayed close to home, went, went to Penn State. And, and while I was at Penn State, I, uh, I triple majored, actually, in business development, uh, PR and advertising, and industrial psychology. So triple major. Uh, at that time, you were still trying to figure out the best route to the NFL, but clearly thinking beyond that because an NFL career doesn't last very long on average. Were you, were you thinking you'd use the the marketing more or did you have something in mind at that point? Or was it just, these are majors I'm interested in. They'll help me in, in whatever I do, or what were you, what were you thinking at that time about a career path beyond the NFL? Yeah. So my First major was com- computer information systems, um, which is like the back programming of like a drive-through window. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like it, like <laughs> stuff like that. But um, didn't really like it. And again, my my uh, my trades focus in high school it was graphic design and video production. So just doing computer information systems or just business in college was, it was kind of boring, you know, like it wasn't giving me my creative edge. Like we take some marketing classes here and there, but it wasn't enough. And I had taken business because I mean, everything is business. So I figured it was a fairly general thing and I wanted some creative stuff. So I was like, well, what's kind of like business or can aid me in business? Oh, advertising, marketing, public relations. Perfect. Right. There's another one. So I added that one in again, also fairly general. So it could aid in, in whatever it is that, my career developed into. And as I'm taking these business classes and these advertising classes, there's a lot of psychology classes, you know, on my schedule, you know, psychology of color, of smell, of like light orientation, like just some sociology classes, just some pretty cool stuff. I, you know, essentially manipulating people to work more efficiently and or manipulating people to buy your products. I'm like, well, that's interesting. So I'm like, so then I started talking to my academic advisor. I'm like, yo, so how many, like, I'm taking a lot of psychology classes. Like, it was a lot of them. 
And I'm like, how many more would I need to just get a psychology degree? And he, he calculated it up. He goes, actually, you don't need that many more. I'm like, well, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I started out just with one and then ended up double majoring and then ended up triple majoring. I was smart enough to line it up that a lot of my prerequisites counted for all of them. Like my psychology classes that I did take would count for all three degrees, right? So it was very strategic to get it done, you know, in four and a half years, but it worked out. Wow. So at what point did you make the decision that you would have a better chance of making it in the NFL as an offensive tackle or as an offensive lineman, as opposed to a tight end? Because it, I mean, clearly that was a planned move and, and based on where your end goal was. Yeah. So I actually, I came to Penn state recruited by Larry Johnson, who's now at Ohio state as a defensive lineman. And my red shirt freshman year, that's what I was. And then we were pretty light on the tight end side. And the coach at the time was Bill Kenny. And every chance he got, he was he was pulling me over doing some tight end stuff. Like, look, I know you're a defensive end, but I'm telling you, you were put on this earth to be a tight end. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, whatever. So I eventually, yeah, he, he did what he had to to get me to become a tight end. So my red shirt freshman year, so my sophomore year, I became uh, a tight end. And that's what I was all, you know, through my whole college career, ended up having a pretty bad injury uh, that first year being a tight end, which ended up keeping me out of football for about two years. It was a really bad one, which is what led me to, to change positions. I had come back from uh, my injury. I'd earned a starting spot again as a tight end, but lost a step, you know, wasn't as, as, as springy and as fast as I used to be, you know? So I was like, well, if I'm going to make it to the NFL, I can't just be some average athletic tight end. Like we've got people like, as you see now, Travis Kelsey, George Kittle, like these guys are, are some talented individuals. You know, I can't just be out there being a blocking tight end. You're not going to have a very long career. And if I'm just going to be sitting there blocking, well, I might as well stack on about 40 pounds and get paid the big bucks to really block. Right. <laughs> so I actually ended up going to coach O'Brien at the time, Joe Paterno had been fired. We had a new coaching staff come in and I went to Bill O'Brien uh, which is a crazy ask as the the Y tight end of his offense, which is like the Rob Gronkowski when he was at the Patriots. Very important, you know, part of the of, of the offense. And I was a starting Y and I was like, hey, look, ah, I want to switch positions. And most people don't want to switch from tight end to tackle. Right? You're no longer catching passes like uh, as hard, as grungy, just down there in the mud all the time. But I was like, you know, I think I could – like I got a frame. I'm, I'm about like a 265, 270 tight end already. And that, and I, in order for me to stay at that weight, I'm eating like grilled chicken salads every day, like barely eating. I'm like, coach, look, I think, I think that I could switch position, gain some weight and really contribute to the team. Like we're already kind of light at offensive tackle. We've got a bunch of great tight ends coming. Like we, Jesse James, Kyle Carter, Adam Brennerman, like, uh, Mike Jasicki, like a lot of these dudes who eventually went to the NFL or even still playing in the NFL. I'm like, yo, like, I think, I think we'll be out at tight end. Let me switch. So, you know, we talked about it for about an hour, moving around depth chart stuff. You know, I'm looking him in his eyes like, coach, in my head, I'm like, yeah, I can contribute to the team. But I'm also thinking, look, this is my best opportunity to make it to the NFL, you know. So he eventually had me switch positions and ended up gaining about, I think, 30, 40 pounds in like two months. Wow. Yeah, it was like it was right after the season during like Thanksgiving, Christmas. Right. So I had a lot of a lot of food to chuck, you know, but yeah. Yeah, it was much better uh, than grilled chicken. Yeah, facts, right? And, and my, my like, my frame was ready for it. You know, like, boop, like even now, like I still weigh three hundred pounds, and people look at me like, what? Like, you don't, you don't look like it. Like, you, like my frame has always just been ready to kind of carry more weight. 
So I ended up switching. Let me switch. Uh, eventually earn a starting spot as an offensive tackle and then declared for the NFL, which was wild because I had another year in college if I wanted it. My injury had been so bad and kept me out for so long. I had qualified and had gotten a medical gray shirt or a medical red shirt, which is a gray shirt. But I'm like, well, look, I finished my degrees. Uh, coach O'Brien said he was going to take his shot at the NFL now, right? He got an offer to go be the head coach of the Texans. So I'm like, well, I don't got no reason to be at Penn State anymore. I want to have another coach. Am I going to go into an NBA program? I mean, I guess, you know, but let's just take my shot. So I took my shot. Declared late to the NFL, didn't get invited to the Combine, uh, did my best during our, our pro day, which Penn State's a big program, so we had a lot of scouts there, and I performed my tail off, you know, no doubt, put up some top numbers that still hold, you know, to this day at Penn State program, which is crazy wow. to think about 10 years later, but um, it didn't matter, right? I did all that. To, to for the draft to come and for every single team round after round after round saying no 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 we'll see you even my own former head coach coach o'brien who had just got to the nfl and was a head coach no 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 but they did like that i was you know i had size they just didn't like that i missed half my college football career that i didn't have much experience as an offensive tackle right there's a lot of things against me Right, person, you got to persevere through adversity, though. So, I was taught: look, control what you can control, your mindset, your effort. Uh, just all you need is a blade of grass, right? If it's on defense, and all you got is a blade of grass to defend, boy, bend, 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 but don't break, right? Defend it. You know, offense. If all you got to get is a blade of grass, then go get, go do everything you can, fight this. It's a blade, right? So for me, that always meant like, hey, look, just an opportunity. If I get, if I get my foot in the door, if I get to get a little blade of grass. And I can make this thing pop. So I did I did get invited to a bunch of different rookie mini camps. You know, teams were like, yeah, you got the size, you got the brain. Eh, we want to get our hands on you. We want to see what you got. So I ended up going to Seattle, uh, who had just won the Super Bowl. They had drafted a bunch of dudes at my position. They had all pros, like 10-year vets at my position. And uh, AKA, probably not a team that I'm going to make. <laughs> so probably shouldn't go there as an undrafted player. But I liked the culture at in Seattle. You know, it was I could tell that the coaches looked at us as far more than just players. You know, they did research into who we were. They, they were looking for these, as they called them, gritty players who had been through some things in their life. Uh, good heads on their shoulders. You know, there's a lot of guys in the program who are making some great names for themselves that were undrafted, like Doug Baldwin, Jermaine Curse, low round draft picks like Russell Wilson, Bobby Wagner, Richard Sherman. You know, like these are some top names that, you know, now. But at the time, very, very low round draft picks, you know, but that's why I went and it, and it ended up working out, ended up making that team, uh, which in reality, I probably shouldn't have. Like I wasn't blocking people like which is my job that is like that I was willing to get better. <laughs> and I had a unique skill set of, of not just being big and strong and fast, but I could catch. Right. Because I was a tight end. So they always put in like different little trick plays and little routes that I could run as the as the jumbo tight end, which was which was cool, you know, and and then they actually called one of them in a game. What was that like? So I, I and I kind of want to go back to talk. I know you said you don't necessarily talk about sports, but for someone who's never been in the NFL, it's interesting. Um, but I don't know how many thousands of players have been in the NFL from the very beginning who never had an opportunity 
to get a touchdown. <laughs> so, and maybe it wasn't a big deal to you, but what was that like when they actually called the play, you got a touchdown in the National Football League? Uh, I mean, no, it's definitely a special place to be, especially in the game that it was. It was the NFC Championship game, right? I guess the Packers? Was it? Against the Packers, yeah. Yeah. So not only have a, not a lot of people scored a touchdown in the NFL, definitely not in a game like that, you know? So yeah. I, I was really surprised when they even called it because we only ever practiced those plays, I think it was like a day or two before the game in like a walkthrough kind of setting, you know, not full speed. And it was NFC championship game. I don't know. What is that? Like week 18, 19, 20, like deep in the season. We've had these plays called every week, haven't called one of them. So I'm not locked in. I'm like, I'm a rookie. There's nowhere they're calling this. So they call it in practice. I ended up running the wrong route. <laughs> then they threw the ball and I dropped it. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, there's definitely nowhere they're calling this play. So when coach came up to me on the sideline, he's like, Gil, you ready? I'm like, yeah, field goal. You know, he's like, he goes, nah, Charlie Brown. <laughs> no way. Like, we're down 16-0 late in the third quarter, right? So I'm like, okay, we're definitely desperate. That's why we're calling it. But, like, <laughs> here it is. Like, here it is. And I don't know. You always dream, especially as an offensive lineman, to score a touchdown, right? So every every time they had one of these plays in that I could score, which, again, was, like, almost every week, whether it was goal line plays that I was able to score on or maybe this fake, like, a fake play, literally every week they had them in so the offensive line and i we'd have conversations like yo if you score a touchdown like what, what you know what touchdown dance are we doing this is before they really legalized touchdown dances and stuff like that like look we'll get the flag what are we doing the electric slide and i'm like <laughs> ah you know like i was always taught in high school my coaches always said hey when you score act like you've been there before Right. So I'm like, you know, I'm not going to do nothing crazy, but I am. I do want to, you know, do a little something, something. So uh, <laughs> I always, always was like, look, I think it'd be kind of cool to mimic whoever the most prominent player on the other team is their touchdown dance. Right. So like if we we're playing Cam Newton, right, he's got his little Superman thing he does. I would do that. So we're playing Aaron Rodgers and his touchdown dance is his little championship belt thing. So I was like, bet if I if I score. And I had pre, I had pre, I thought about this before. Like, look, if I score, which there was a good chance in this game, then he called it. I'm hitting the discount double check. I'm hitting them with the <laughs> so I did. So I did. I hit him with it. And uh unbeknownst to me, the guy who threw me the ball, John Ryan, who we actually have the same birthday. Huh. Crazy. Uh, he used to play for the Packers and they had released him. So this was kind of like a get oh. back, get back at them. He turns to the sideline and does the same thing at the <laughs> same time that I did it. I didn't know. I saw it, it might have been months later, maybe even over a year later. I saw an alternate angle from the sideline and it shows John running past their sideline doing it. Right. I was like, Oh my gosh. Like it was just funny, but um, wow. Yeah. It was, it was definitely a, a surreal moment, no doubt. And and it would be cool to score a touchdown, no doubt, which I did. But if you lose the game, like no one cares. And we were, it mattered, you know, but that, that touchdown ended up being the catalyst for one of the greatest comebacks in NFC championship history. Right. Not, not by my standards, but like, the league standard they play this sure. game even that play every year multiple times right and we ended up winning the game with with this onside kick recovery two-point conversion my fake field goal for a touchdown right just to go to overtime 
to then eventually win the game to go back to the Super Bowl, um, to lose the Super Bowl, of course, unfortunately. But the touchdown was – it was it, to this day, people, you know, they still talk about it. Right. Did you – when when you started then in the NFL, went the um, undrafted free agency route, uh, um, were you prepared? Like, you knew you wanted to get to the NFL. Was it what you thought it would be? And uh, there are a couple of things I wanted to ask about. Just, you know, what what what's it like? Just a general impression. Physically, was it more difficult than you thought? People talk about the speed, you know, it's just so much faster um the business side of it um and then i'm curious about like the financial literacy <laughs> preparation because you hear about athletes who aren't prepared for getting more money and i think the leagues generally the professional leagues do a much better job of trying to prepare rookies for for that kind of thing I, I would guess that wasn't an issue for you because of your multi degrees and your business acumen and just, you know, that kind of um, preparation prior to it. But what was, what was the experience like just overall? Yeah. So again, because of some of the lived experiences that I had with that boarding school, I went to in terms of like sticking to a schedule, no issue there. Right. Some guys did have problems with being on time, uh, which wasn't a problem for me, because at Penn State, we had what what was called Joe Paterno time. If the meeting started at one, it actually started at twelve forty five. Right. So if you walked in at 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 50, you were late. <laughs> but like, nah, the meeting starts at one. Now nah, you're late like that. You know, if you're if you're I think it was if you're on time, you're late. And if you're early, you're on time or something like that. Right. Um, so those things definitely help when bill o'brien came to penn state when we talk about uh we'll call it football iq that's where it really stepped up a lot um bill o'brien came from the patriots is one of the most dynamic offenses there and literally just took the cover page off patriots and put penn state on <laughs> like there were times where we were watching the patriots tom brady giving out checks like the exact same hand signals like lisa ronda like the play calls like all we're literally running the Patriots offense. So football IQ, understanding complimentary football, how to manage timeouts, like situational football, like Bill O'Brien, like very grateful at, in college, like got us right with that. And he ran our program very similar and practice very much like an NFL practice. Right. So when I got to the NFL it was, you know, the amount of periods we had, which is like, you know, breakdown with individual drills with your coaches or offensive drills or situational stuff like backed up or goal line, like just how to practice, you know, like you don't always have to tackle guys and take them to the ground, but like you can still move fast and fit up, right. Get a good thud as, as he called it, all that stuff happened in college, which made it a lot easier to transition into the NFL and then definitely the speed of the game, right? Like, especially as an offensive lineman, you think offensive lineman, you maybe think like, you know, the slowest guys in the team, kind of a little pudgy, like what? Especially in Seattle, I'm talking reaching and running like horses, like moving fast. I'm like, yo, wait, like are those, are those the tight ends? Like, no. And like fast, like, and, and what it like fast, fast. And, and, um, I definitely had to get used to that, right? And because I, I was such a thinker, 
know what I'm saying? I'm the type where like I'm looking, I'm gonna look at the defense, I'm gonna, you know, start to think, okay, this guy does this, I'm gonna do this, and then they're like, no, just overwhelm him with your speed. Like, just go. I was like, okay, like it took a little bit to get it, but once you start doing that, you start to realize like you dictate as an offensive lineman, you dictate what goes on. So the faster you go, or like the more aggressive you are, like that's how the offense moves. And um it was cool. It, I, I enjoyed, you know, getting immersed in that and, and catching up with the speed of the game and understanding of it and almost using the defense who's just as fast, if not faster. Like these are the d- defensive ends and outside linebackers are probably some of the best athletes in the world. Right. And our job as offensive tackles is to block them while moving backwards and they're moving forward. <laughs> Right. I don't think people think about that. Like right, we're moving right. and we got to stop them from, yeah. you know, but anyway, um, all in all, you know, I think my, 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 my lived experience, the different programs I was in helped me adjust rather quickly to the NFL and, and be able to learn. I think my, my learning curve was, was rather steep, but it was good. Um, in terms of uh, financial literacy and, and kind of readiness in that way, I think the NFL, you know, they, they cover their tails. They provide enough, you know, they provide people come in, especially as rookies, you got these rookie uh, meetings every Monday and they give you different, you know, relationship things, therapy things, budgeting things, financial things, investment, you know, they have people come in and talk to you, give you, give you things. But like, I think um, the issue is less the player and more the people that are, acting like a shark you know there's cases here we've got anywhere from a 19 to 22 year old who very well may just dropped a bunch of like millions into their hands i don't care who you are what your demographic is what your career is there's a very high chance of you failing i don't care who your family is either you know because it happens you know when you talk about first generation to second generation second generation to third generation money it very rarely makes it to the third, if not the fourth generation, very, very rarely, right? So that's letting me know, like even these very wealthy families who've got all these structures in place and all the education in place, they drop money into the next generation and it still goes to, you know, nothing. So like, what what's going on? I think it's more, again, unfortunately, the, the predatory nature of those that are floating around, right? I think now it's gonna get even earlier with these NIL deals in college. You know, like, I think there needs to be, I don't know, something, something, I don't know what, but there needs to be a a stronger vetting process and or like, I don't know, like on a team, they do everything they can to make sure we got the best trainers, the best massage therapists, the best nutritionists, right? So why not on the financial side? Now here, personally, this is a, this is a little personal thing. I think that the NFL doesn't mind us not being financially free or literate. Because if we start taking our little million dollars and know how to invest it and turn it into 50 million, then we don't need football anymore, right? So now the brand, the quality, right? That goes down. And now again, that's moving a little bit earlier. So we'll see, we'll see. But again, I think that there could be one, the predatory nature of those that are floating around. But I do think the league doesn't necessarily hate that there's a lot of us that, you know, <laughs> aren't financially literate, you know? It doesn't well, hurt that's. Them. Yeah, the reason I ask that is because, and obviously on a much smaller scale as far as the the amounts, but we really try to teach our students. Part of our model is financial literacy and the whole range of of things you should know, um, investing, being smart about investing, saving for retirement early, um, you know, having a budget, 
all of those what seem like simple things, but that can make the money not only last longer, but grow if, if you're doing it well and you have the right people around you. Um, so I think getting to the predatory, uh, you know, you've got to, you got to make sure you trust the people around you to you got, have your interests in mind. That's a fact. And, and unfortunately, this is what goes on sometimes. There's cases where a guy will have an agent, uh, which even if, if we need agents, I don't even know if that's a thing, especially on a rookie contract. Like, what are you negotiating? Nothing. But anyway, um, agents, unfortunately, sometimes will recommend like a financial advisor or an accountant right to guys which i never liked that you know the way my camp was set up i don't want my agent to like my financial advisor and i don't want them to like my accountant because now y'all are checking each other and you know, who gets the best deal out of that me if y'all all like each other y'all got cahoots he's getting points off of what the deal he brought in nah that's not good for me now y'all siphoning money off of me and who knows what's actually going on you know so anybody who's listened to this an athlete or anybody for that matter Set yourself up like the government. Like they shouldn't like each other because then that's best for us. If they start liking each other too much, that ain't good for the people. <laughs> Checks and balances. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good advice. Well, so at, at, at what point, well, probably before NFL, but as your NFL career was winding down, you were thinking about what's next. How did that all transpire? And right now you're doing some really cool stuff. I mean, real estate development, but the bridge eco villages are, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and how you got on that path after the NFL? Yeah. So there was never like a, a transition or a, a quote unquote backup plan, right? I was told very early on that the same attributes that make me successful as an athlete are the same things that are going to make me successful in the classroom and the business world and whatever it is that I, that I decide to do. So, I mean, hence with my studies during college, it was never like, Oh, I'm gonna just do kinesiology and maybe I'll be a, a trainer or something, you know, when I'm done, like, no, nah, like one, y'all are paying for this. So I'm gonna get as much education as I can. And two, I, I can do it. Like, why not? Like I'm, I'm a top performing division one football player taking in a crazy playbook. Like, why can't we do a class is easy. You just got to do your homework at the end of the day. <laughs> but um, I, I, I say that to say this, that it was, again, never a backup plan. To me, it was always concurrent. So like, even like in college, I had already written up a bunch of business plans. They told us identify a point of pain and solve it with a product, a good, a service or a model, right? So I had already done that. Like I'm talking full business plans. And even into the NFL, same thing. It wasn't like, oh, let me wait till I'm out of the NFL to start investing in real estate or to, you know, to start. No. What? For what? Why? Why wait? So when I I was at, I was released from the 49ers in I think it was February of 2019, um, and then founded the bridge of officially about a month about a month later, April 6th, two months, about almost two months later, April 6th, and um, of 2019. And and I and I and what happened? This is this is the catalyst that that kind of brought it all together. A lot of some people ask, some people don't, but this is what happened, March. 31st 2019 uh the rapper and philanthropist community builder nipsey hustle was shot and killed out out in front of a, a shopping center that he owned uh nipsey was a, a rapper in in california in compton uh was involved in, in gangs and, and hustling did, did, did what he had to do to feed his family family growing up ended up getting into into rapping uh you know made some pretty good albums was an independent artist you know owned his masters you know was talking about 
financial literacy and generational wealth and his raps, right? So it's kind of a different cat. Um, and then wasn't just talking about it, but was doing it. Had actually invested into Compton uh, to, to build a co-working space called Vector 90 to act as a pipeline between the inner city and Silicon Valley. And um, so he had gotten he had gotten shot and killed out of front, in front of one of the things that he had owned. And um, it just led me into a, a deep dive into his life, what he was about, who he was, listened to a lot of his music, his interviews. And I started questioning myself, you know, like, like, Gary, what are you doing? Like, like this guy here, like, unfortunately had to lean on, on, on selling drugs and gang banging and rapping. Like he didn't get to go to a Milton Hershey school or earn a scholarship to go to a Penn state or go to the NFL and make a bunch of, you know, clean money. So like, what are you doing? Why, why aren't you investing intentionally in the infrastructure of your community? Right. So I'm, I'm sorry. I started thinking to myself, like, well, I, I was asking that question about corporations and why are these football players not going home and doing things beyond football camps? Well, Gary, what are you doing? So again, Nipsey was shot and killed March 31st, 2019. It was a week of me literally in my office with his album Victory Lap on repeat. Writing, bring, bringing all the different business plans that I had written together into into this one entity right a co-working space urban agriculture multifamily homes a nonprofit, entertainment pieces like sustainability i'm like whoa this is the bridge that's what this is that's like, and, it, and, it, and it came i looked up if the bridge.com was an available domain and it was <laughs> crazy so i'm like okay this is meant to be design the logo real quick you know and then then it was about finding the people to make it happen, right? Oh, you got the business plan. You got all the processes down now. Let's make this happen. <laughs> what What is your dream? And, and this, this can evolve, but where would you like to see the bridge 10 years from now? 10 years from now, would that be 33? Uh, I would like there to at least be one bridge in half the states, you know, and can you more fully explain the bridge concept, the eco village, the just, yeah, go into that a little bit. It's really amazing. So the bridge, um, there's a few different entities that, that comprise this initiative. Uh, the biggest one is the, not, the, uh, the development company where we look to acquire schools, malls, shopping centers, warehouses, or just land. And we convert them into their highest and best use which is a mixed use. And we call our mixed use developments eco villages. So on a, on a real estate side, this is really just value add, uh, adaptive reuse, mixed use development stuff, right? So we take these schools and we convert them into spaces that have offices, uh, restaurants, housing, uh, entertainment places, education places. So places to work, eat, live, learn, and play. Pretty much a little 15 minute city. Everything you could ever want is in one place. So we take these centrally located schools, shopping centers, these malls, and we put what needs to be in them, not just a bunch of retail or not just a bunch of housing, but everything all together. Uh, and that model came from the town of Hershey. And again, how Milton Hershey created that ecosystem for his workers. So that's what the bridge does. We acquire these properties. We work with the local community to figure out what specific amenities are, are best within that space. Um, work with elected officials to get grant funding in or, or different vouchers or subsidies, tax credits if possible. And then we work with private investors to then bridge that gap to actually build up these facilities. And 
we talk about sustainability and that means longevity. You know, the, the bridge is, there is a nonprofit part of it on the educational aspect of it, but itself as an entity is made to be sustainable, which means it sustains itself. You know, so it's still a real estate play with, with, with leases and, and workshops, right? But there is a, a very strategic um, culture built for the tenants. Right, we want we want specific tenants that are offering these educational programs that are providing some of these basic needs for people, food, shelter, water, teaching people to build businesses, how to farm, how to invest in real estate, right? Teaching people trades. And what we're promoting within each of our bridge locations is, is what we call self-sufficiency, right? We, we want our, our communities to become self-sufficient because that's empowering, right? That we, we there's a the worthy adversary, if you will, or the, the competitor of the bridge is a system and it's called systemic oppression, right? Which is not good for any of us because it's not sustainable. Any, any group of people at any point that's oppressed, right? You're only as strong as your weakest, as your weakest link and that's weak for all of us. So how do we establish a system that continuously empowers people, right? We don't want a system that, that, that sucks out your creativity or doesn't educate you on financial literacy or, you know, you've got situations where people get out of their communities and never come back and invest back into it. How do we set up systems that that automatically happens, right? And our system's called systemic empowerment. And the idea is if you take the motto of the bridge, you can toss it into the middle of a desert and a, a sustainable city will start to populate around it, right? Jobs are being created. There's food being produced. Homes are being built, right? Education is being had. There's entertainment spaces, right? Everything you ever want is right there and it populates. So that's the bridge. And I know you do other things. Uh, you speak a lot, uh, motivational speaking, inspirational speaking. Uh, is your website still GaryGilliamJr.com? That's right. And Gary has two R's. Like Rolls Royce. Yes, yes. Um, well, we we really appreciate your spending time with us. I have one one last question. Uh, you're doing so many things, but one thing we talk about is in your spare time or um, maybe time you make. How do you express yourself or express yourself, as we say on on this show? What 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 do you like to do? as a release from all of these other things you're doing? I enjoy time with my daughter, my family, you know? Right. I think uh, that's great for me. You know, I don't need to really do anything else, have any other crazy outlet. Um, yeah, just giving back to my community, to my family, spending time with my, with, my, with my family, my daughter. You know, I enjoy spending time with her and watching her grow and learn and pour into her. You know, I think uh, that's very rewarding for me. And how old is she? She's three. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. That's awesome. My daughter's 17. So um, enjoy these three-year-old <laughs> years. <laughs> I love my daughter. And there are different phases, you know, just enjoy all of them. Yeah. So I'm glad you're I've able heard, to. I've heard. I'll, I'll, I'll cherish this while I got it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Really. When you can still hold her. And although you're a bigger guy, you can probably hold your daughter a lot longer than I, than I was able to. Uh, anyway, Gary, it, it's been great having you. Um, we've got an idea for a place that you can develop a, an eco village in Kansas. So um, it's a great concept. Wish you the best on that. And uh, hopefully we'll get you involved in, in JAG or JAG K in the future. Thank you very much. Looking forward to it.
Thanks for watching Espresso Yourself with Chuck. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel and get notified of any new episodes of Espresso Yourself with Chuck or other videos with our JAG-K program. Thank you.